The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. With all that said, my name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Join me for the hour is Mr. Milton Berg, a fellow CFA charter holder and has a really unique way of looking at markets. Milton, for those who are not familiar with you, introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in markets? And what are you doing currently? My background, it's nice to be with you, uh, Michael. I've followed your work over, over the years. I know you've won a number of awards and some great research you've done. And um, I always like people who are very serious about this business and, and do the research and uh, delve under the just the, just the chart patterns, what uh, you know, what the market looks like. They they get get the underlying factors that move the market. And that's what you do. That's what I do. So I really appreciate this this meeting. My background: I started this business way back in 1978. I started out as a pure Graham Dodd fundamentalist. You know, I did uh, I, I analyzed balance sheets. I you look for weak balance sheets and you know and hidden assets in companies and so on and so forth. But uh, I was introduced to technical analysis early in my career, and I realized that it, the techni- technical analysis or market analysis gives you an edge that you don't really get by doing the fundamentals. In seeing the markets, I saw you know fundamentals could be lousy and the market could be doing well. And, and in fact, most great market turning points, either tops or bottom, take place when the either when the fundamentals look good at the top or they look terrible at the bottom. And I, I see that economists aren't great in, in projecting the fundamentals. So why should somebody who's a, a market analyst or somebody who's uh, investing in the stock market be any better than an economist? So I found my niche in the, um, in the I call it market analysis, turning point analysis. You can call it technical analysis. And that's what I've been working on for over 40 years. And I uh, mostly kept to myself. Most of my work is done. Uh, I worked at, at some major hedge fund companies and I dealt with some of the uh, titans in the business. And I basically have a, a, a slew of proprietary indicators that I use to try to give me an, an edge on how to how to, to play the market. Of course, I'm involved in individual stocks as well, but I only care about individual stocks to buy when I'm bullish on the market. I only care about individual stocks to sell when I'm negative on the market. I don't try to find you know weak stocks in a bull market or strong stocks in a bear market. That's not that's not my game. My game is to go with the wind behind my back and to, to try to get an understanding of where the market is headed. And once I know where the market is headed, then I can understand what kind of groups, what kind of stocks to either buy if the market's headed up or, or to short if the market's headed lower. That's basically enough of my background, I believe. Do you get a sense that people underestimate the work that goes into being a really good technician? Um, I say that just purely because I see this a lot on Twitter. People just show squiggly lines and they think they're pro technicians because they can overlay some indicator on some favorite charting software. Yeah. I mean, from all the studies I myself have done, I know this is far more complex than what 
most people think it is. Well, unfortunately, it's not just most people. Many analysts themselves are very superficial, unfortunately. They're good at, good at PR. They're able to get a great following, but really all they do is, is very superficial work. And if they're wrong, they're wrong. And if they're right, they're right. And it's a flip of a coin. Sometimes they'll be right. And sometimes they'll be wrong. But there are, a, I guess, more than a handful of analysts who take the business seriously and really do the kind of work that they should be doing. And these, you know, they, they, those are the important guys. Yes, there are many people who just look at a chart and find a crossing or find uh, you know, some something that they, looks good, a pattern that looks nice to them. And they figure, hey, I'm an analyst. It doesn't really work that way, obviously, and as you know. You have to really delve into the data that the market is generating or delve into the data that's consistent with either bull market or bear market or so on and and realize that we only deal in probabilities. Anyone who acts as if they know for a certainty what the market is going to do is not a true analyst because the stock market is not a, a pair of dice or it's not a roulette wheel where you know exactly what the probabilities are at any given time. The stock market is a is a live, growing product, which is uh, affected by human emotions and by changes all over the world, changes in money supply, changes in economic forces, changes in, uh, in, in people's attitude, changing in, in the average age of the population. The many, many factors that go into the movement of, of the capital markets. So it can't be measured the way you measure a physical, a physical system. It's not a physical system. It's more of an emotional and a growing uh, system. And yes, there's, there's a lot, lot involved. And, uh, you know, it's, it's in, the, the type of research you can do is infinite. We have 30,000 indicators we've developed over the years. Now, 30,000 sounds like a lot, but the computer tells you which one is, which one is working in any given day, which one is signaling. So it's, some of these indicators only signal once in the history of the stock market. But if it signals again, it might be telling me something. Anyway, yes, I do agree with you, Michael. Definitely, there's far more to, to market analysis than looking at charts and uh, moving averages and so on. Yeah, and I think the challenge which people, I think, find it hard to wrap their minds around is that probabilities change daily. So it's true, it's all a game about probabilities, but the probabilities are themselves. You never know what the probabilities are going to be. You only know what, based in the past, you have no idea what the probabilities will be in the future. There are some indicators that may have worked in the past that will never work it again. again. Some indicators that may have signaled them 10 times in the past, they said they had a probability rate of 85%. But after the next 10 times, the probability may go down from 85 to, to 69 or 70%. You never know. So, uh, yes, probabilities change definitely. But realize you, you deal in probabilities. Now, one, one benefit of dealing in probabilities is the following. If you have more than one indicator, if you have one indicator with 80% probability, another one with a 65%, another one with a 75 and they're all telling you the same thing, then it increases the probabilities of the it's greater than the average probability. You know, your probability being correct is more than the average probability because just is how statistics work. So if you have more than, you know, a, 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 a convergence or a confluence, or as Marty's I would call a cluster of signals, gives you far better consistent returns than one individual signal. Now, the other part of that, of course, is that if a signal is tracked and executed on by everybody, then the effectiveness of the signal also goes away. I mean, it's like this class of sort of some extent of the alpha. So as you've done your, your work over the years and looked at all these different indicators, which indicators have you found are not as effective as they used to be because they're more public? I mean, moving averages are always the one that everyone references. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about uh, when I started this business in 1978, nobody ever heard of the uh, inverted yield curve having an effect on the stock market. Nobody. In fact, nobody even knew how to stock an effect on the economy. On, on recessions. Marty Zweig is the first one to publicize that one of the things you look for before bear market is the inverted yield curve. All of a sudden, everyone out there and, they, and, their, and their mother's uncle is talking about an inverted yield curve. That's, that's one thing that has changed. Monetary policy has changed dramatically. When I was first in the business, 
every Friday afternoon, whenever the money supply number came out, they'd focus money supply, money supply, and they did correlate very well with stocks. Well, beginning in the mid-1980s, actually, in 86 and on, it was more, much more difficult to correlate movement, long-term movement in the stock price with movements in the money supply. Now, I don't know if it's necessarily because once people follow it, it doesn't work. That, that, is one of the, that is one of the factors when it's a psychological type indicator. Another factor is, I say, nothing is, nothing, everything changes in this world. The definition of money changes. The economy changes from a capital-intensive economy to a service economy. And therefore, the, you know, the, the, Dr. Copper, for example, worked very, very well from 1850 to you know, 1950. And it still actually still works, but there's less reason for it to work because we're less of an industrial commodity, an industrial uh, economy than we were in the past. So many things that changes, but yes, it's not just that people recognize an indicator. It's that if an indicator is based on a certain understand, a certain uh, makeup of the market, the makeup of the market may have changed. Look, look at the Dow Industrials, no longer full of industrial stocks. You know, so, uh, different types of stocks. So things things change, yes. But I would say an indicator that is followed by everybody, you have to assume it's not going to work. Actually, it's a, a famous Joe Granville used to say, but I say this as well. If it's obvious, it's obviously wrong. And too many indicators have become obvious. One great one, of course, is the now uh, the, the, the 10-day breath thrust they're talking about. Everyone's assuming we're, the, the market's got to be up in a bull market for the next year or two because of the 10-day breath thrust. I don't believe that's necessarily the case. I w- certainly wouldn't. Bet my uh, bet the ranch on that. Yeah, and I'd argue in many ways it's it's easier than ever to be contrarian because social media allows you to see where everybody is convinced of a narrative, but it's also very hard because if everyone believes something, it tends to work for a moment in time just because it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? If everybody sees it's above a moving average, then everyone starts piling in. That kind of creates the the trend, and they're all being fooled by. Yeah. each other's actions rather than the actual average, right? I think it in the action. Yeah, but we really have to find. When is the last guy piling in? Now, I'll give you an, I can't give you an example. I can't mention this technician, so I won't. But there's a, a technician out there. You, you probably know him by name. He's not that great. He has a retail newsletter, and he is, you know, he, he's not that great, really. He just does superficial work. But one thing great about him is he, he throws in the towel very late. In other words, when he's bearish, he stays bearish, bearish until he finally throws in the towel. When he throws in the towel, He's sort of the last guy to turn bullish. And same thing on the downside. So that's why I said Twitter. I, I just started using Twitter in the last six months. I'm not, I've never been a Twitter guy. I just did it because my PR people are recommending that in order to increase my, uh, my client base. But um, I noticed on Twitter, you can't see who these last movers are, in a sense, on a very short-term basis. Now, I've only used it for six months. But there are many people out there who say, why is it every time I buy, the market goes down? Every time I sell, the market goes, goes up. Yeah, because these are the kind of guys you can rely on as a great contrary indicator. You have to find these guys. It's not so simple. Well, I would actually, I would, I would actually argue it's pretty easy to find those guys. A lot of them tend to be anonymous accounts with large followings that talk in terms of macro, but not in terms of strategy. I've, I've used that line before. It's like, to me, you know, what they would call Fintwit is the modern odd lot indicator. Right? right. Odd lots don't work anymore either, right? Odd lots stop working. No longer have too many odd lots. Right. So, okay. Now, now I named the name. I named this space the market's turning point. I, right. I've made this argument many times before. A lot of people say, "Listen, I just want to get in the middle of a trend." And I always go back to the biggest returns don't come in the middle of a trend; they come at the turn of yeah. the trend because that's exactly. how compounding works. Exactly. Not only that, if you get in the middle of your trend, any regular correction will get you out of it, especially if you're a trader. Get in the middle. Of, the market's a fifty percent, and you get in, or forty percent, you get in, and pulls back twelve percent. And you say, that's it. I made a mistake. I'm out. If you got in early, 
You sometimes, you know, you have, and the indicators don't tell you something has changed. You can sit through a correction to a far greater extent. So that's not a benefit of getting in early. And 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 the challenge there is that it's always a leap of faith, right? Because it's it really it's an argument for mean reversion, right? That you have some kind of extreme on the upside or the downside. That's where the turning point comes in to get back to the mean. So mm-hmm. let's talk about some of the things that you tend to look at for major turning points, which most people would not recognize right. until the well, transfer. Well, let me tell you what turning point analysis is. In other words, rather than using broad, broad indicators, you know, toward a moving average and so on, we've analyzed every market turning point since 1928. When I say every market, I'm talking every 7% gain, every 7% decline, okay? Of course, we couldn't, we'll never say, we can never catch every 7% move, we're not even trying to. I want to see what, what, takes, what uniquely takes place at turning points is what I'm looking for. What is unique at turning points? Now, of course, if you, if you look at every 7% decline that rallied up, most of them take place during, in, in a major bear market. You know, you have a major bear market down 7% or 10% and you rally a little bit, go back down. So we find what is, takes place at turning points. And number one, major turning points, number one, I, 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 I'm not really giving away the shot because people have to use it. Number one is at major turning points, there's, there's a major change in the characteristics of volume, for example. I'll just tell you very simply. In 1929, at the low, you had record volume, right? In 1987, at the low, you had record volume in the New York Stock Exchange. At many previous lows, you have record volume or near record volume. We measure highest volume in a half a year, highest volume in a year, highest volume in a year and a half, out to highest volume in five years. You measure it on a one-day, three-day, or five-day basis. This gives us a clue both in stocks and in commodities when you get a turning point. I will tell you that I was working for a firm and I was a consultant for a firm when silver peaked, I think in 2011, at 50 bucks an ounce. And, that, you know, I was just measuring the volume of the commodity exchange. You had, you had the highest five-day volume since the peak back in um, 1980. And I said, this is a turning point. And, you know, and it was correct. So volume is, is one thing to look at because there's something very logical about volume and something very illogical about volume. Let's take the, the, the low in 1987, because m- many of you guys listening may have been around then. I mean, I guess you have been old times to be in 87, but to me, 87 and 29 are the same, because I just look at the data. I don't look at, you know, I don't say I, live, I lived it. I say the data lived it, and I have the data. But in any event, 87 at the lows, right? Market's down 20% in the day. You have the greatest volume in history on that, that particular day, which tells you there's, un- there's a lot of smart people out there willing to buy stocks trading 20% lower than they traded the day before. But on the other side of that same coin, what kind of idiots were willing to sell stocks 20% lower than they could have sold it the day before? So volume is telling you there's some smart people in the market and some stupid people in the market, both doing the same, both uh, both spending a lot of the money in the market, one on the buy side, one on the sell side. But that's what takes place at turning points. There are there are people who either in the know or following a a, a methodology of buying weakness or buying or buying value. And that are the people who are following a trend to its death, to their death, and getting out just where they should be getting in. So volume is number one. So if I, because I'm not giving away the shop when I mention volume, you'll notice now one of the fellows actually on Twitter, he tweeted that uh, I, was, I was interviewed about a year ago about uh, about my uh, these turning points. I mentioned volume. He said he's been using five-day volume to find the turning points in, in Bitcoin. Now, we have many, many types of indicators we use to find turning points in Bitcoin, and volume is one of them. So, yes. I guess volume is, is a very, very important factor. Now, we don't just look at straight volume. You see, what we have in my indicators is, in the stock, you can do it in the stock market, you can't do it all over. We have, besides this, at one day, three day, five day volume, we have volume on stocks on the upside, volume stocks on the downside, volume stocks that are unchanged, and so on and so forth. So we're not just looking at 
total volume. We're looking at the, the makeup of the volume. I can give you an example in the current market, if you don't mind. I mean, I'll give you a very good example. And that was in, um, let me find it right here. That was in, on October 4th. As you know, I'm, I'm going to describe the market the way I see the market. I know the market bottomed in June. At a major bottom, you had, you had gaps into the lows in June 16th. You had major fear of a war escalating to a nuclear war. You had uh, people worrying about a, a depression ahead. You also had the Fed threatening to raise rates by three quarters of a percent, which he finally did on June 15th. Well, lo and behold, on June 16th, the Russell 2000 made its low for the year. It hasn't got, ha- made a lower low since June 16th. The S&P made a low on June 16th, but it made a lower low in October. That low low is less than 2.5% below the low on June 16th. So we understand this market, the market bottomed in June. It didn't bottom in October. It didn't bottom in December with the NASDAQ. The real bottom, the inter- we'll call it the internal market bottom was in June. And a lot of oversold indicators were far more oversold in June than they were in, in, in September and October. Or in December. And, and by the way, that's not an interrupt, but I, so I shared at the top of the nest. That was actually the first time I myself on Twitter used the term melt up. It was June 16th, which was yep. that low. And right. I, I, I happened to catch that, that day. Mm-hmm. NBC that day, I have the screenshot there, that day said markets in turmoil. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, exactly. Like that exactly. was the low. That was the low. But what I try to say is all of a sudden the market t- tested low on September 30th and then it rallied for, for a number of days and then made a final low October 12th. But on October 4th, I believe it was on October 4th. Let me get it right here. On October 4th, the S&P was up like 2.5%. But the volume in the down stocks, in, in, of the 505 stocks in the S&P 500, the volume of the stocks that were down, they remember this, the market was up 2.5% of the day. But the volume of the stocks that were down on the day was 283 times the volume of the stocks that were up on the day. So what kind of crazy aberration was that? The market bottoms the day before. Now it's October 4th. S&P is up 2.5% in the day. Yet the volume of the stocks that are down on the day is, is 283 times as greater than the volume on the stocks that are up on the day, which tells you that, that there's panic selling taking place into the first update off that low. You see? Now, we looked historically. There have been very few times there were 283 times as much volume of the up, of the down stocks as the up stocks, very few times. So we, we uh, broadened the filter to 100 times. And that I let me try to get the indicator so exactly where we are. And part part of, part of that downside lack of confirmation in October, which was what yeah. so so I, I said June 16 melt up come for stocks based on the CME. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. August said every W needs a V, which is double test, double bottom, right? But then it, it's interesting, right? Because in October is when you started seeing small caps and and better breadth, mm-hmm. you know, even yeah. in that volatility. So which can confirms your point about the downside volume. Yeah, yeah. But let me give you the the history of that uh, that signal. I'm I'm bringing up my charts. Here it is. I got it right here. Okay, October 4th, you're using a filter of 100 times as much downside volume as upside volume, regardless of whether the market's up on the day or down on the day. Look at history, you've only had it since 1957. Now, we start our data for the S&P, the real data is in 57, because that's when the S&P was broadened from 90 stocks to 500 stocks, March 4th, 1957. Since 1957, this only took place four times in the past, believe it or not, where the S&P had more than 100 times as much volume of downside as the upside, 
The median return over the next 12 months is 30.45%. The median maximum return never had a down year, never had a pullback, a pullback of more than more than 8%. And the median return within the next 20 days was 30.45%. We, we've gained so far, the maximum we've gained since then was 10.26%. But the point being is, this is the kind of say, look at volume. It's also tricky to look at broad volume because maybe the broad volume that day wasn't that great. Maybe it wasn't you know, the greatest volume in the last three, 30 days. Who knows? But in the internal volume showed an aberration, which you see very, very rarely, and it was very bullish aberration. So that's just one example of the kind of volume that we use, the kind of trend. Now, why is this turning point? Because in the past, this has taken place at turning points. Let me give you some dates. It took place on August 17th, 1982, where the downside volume was 100 times as much as the upside volume. That's, you know, five, five calendar days after the 82 low. It took place on November 20th, 2011, which was a little bit less than a month after the 2011 low. It took place on December 31st, 2012, and again on December 26th, 2018, which was, I believe, one day past the low. So this is a turning point. We, find, we try to find indicators that take place, that occur at turning points. The reason they take place at turning points is because I, I'm a very, I'm not, I, I don't say I'm a big believer. I, I'm not a believer at all in modern portfolio theory. Not at all. It makes no sense. Just academics, you know, who have no clue about the real world. But I do say that most market days, movement, most market days are random. Most market movements are random. But at turning points, movements are far from random. Now, the movement isn't random, and the um, and the the underlying text indicators that are taking place is, is not random. I'll give you a good example. Anyone who looks at a chart can see the non-randomness of October 12th. Let me just open my Bloomberg and get the chart here. You look at the spike down and the reversal. Now, spike down and reversal is a non-random event. The low of this bear market took place on October 13th, as you know. Where the, the, close, the low closed October 12th. October 13th, you had a range from low to high of, I think, about 5% of the S&P. It opened sharply down to the downside, closed up on the upside. Uh, on the day, it was roughly up about 5.5% in the day, roughly. You look at the chart. It's just it's a glaring example of a chart of a turning point. Now, besides the glaring, that glaring evidence of a turning point, just four days before that intraday low, there was a gap down on, on October 6th. The market gapped down into October 7th. So gaps are signs of turning points, and the reversal, spike reversal, is a sign of, of, of turning points. And just to be honest, Michael, you know, I, you know, I don't put much of my information on Twitter. It's my clients who get every, all our information. I had been bullish into the October lows, and when I saw the break on October 13th, I turned bearish. I told my clients, like, I'm getting out of my longs. But then it there is back in because of the turn. So, you know, we got. I try to be trained, I try to be flexible, and I know I will not always be right, but I know most analysts out there who would have told the clients to get out on October 13th would have said, okay, let's stay out and see what happens. Well, I saw what happened that same day because the decline was negative to me because we broke the support that we had on September 30th, which I thought would be the low, and then we, we broke it, on a very, and then all of a sudden we turned back above it, and I that told my clients I was wrong about my earlier call, let's get back in. Unfortunately... Something that was not possible when I first got into the business. When I got into the business, there was no futures, there were no ETFs. If you wanted to buy stocks, you had to buy stocks. You know, if you wanted to buy a basket, you had to buy a basket. It took a lot of work. But nowadays, it is just so easy to reposition that I don't feel it's very strange to go occasionally, and this is one occasion, to tell clients the market's breaking down, let's get out. And then as it turns back on change in the day, to get back in, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, you know, by the way, I will say that we would have done the same. And express that that view on Twitter, and I've seen this myself with my own. People then say, "Well, you're flip flopping." 
you're a flip flopper. It's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're supposed to do, yes. <laughs> don't, you know, if you can't flip flop, you can't be a trader. Right. And how can you think in terms of probabilities unless you're unless you're flip flopping when probabilities change? Exactly. Uh, exactly. I, I now, you know, it's, it's just it's not flip flopping. It's really just following the following the market and following the data. No, let's put it this way. If I at September 30th, I was very, very I was bullish before that, but let's say September 30th I was very, very bullish, right? October 4th, you had the 100 to 1 upside volume day. I was even more bullish, right? Very reasonably bullish. Then all of a sudden, the market gaps down on October 7th. It makes it a new intraday low on October 13th. I say, I could be wrong. The indicator may have worked six times in the past. It won't necessarily work the seventh time. You got to stick with probabilities. But then that same day gave us a turning point, gave us that spike down on reversal, which, which held, you know, held dramatically as you look at the charts. And that's exactly, exactly what you're looking for. And, uh, you know, this is just giving you some flavor. Twitter, I don't give, you know, I, I'm, I lag on Twitter. I don't give my, I, you know, I have clients who pay me a lot of money. I can't, I can't give, Twitter, give my re- research on Twitter. But after, you know, a week or, two, or 10 days, I can say what I said 10 days ago. And, um, yes, but, yeah, you're, you're right about that. Well, listen, most people on Twitter, I have to say, are not sophisticated. And the sophisticated people on Twitter really keep a very low profile in, in the sense that, they don't give, uh, you know, they don't really tell you who they are necessarily unless they have a business. But some who's, are, who's you know, there are many hedge funds out there that are on Twitter, many sharp, successful, um, big traders that, that look at Twitter. But you don't, necessarily, you don't necessarily know who they are. You know what I mean? They sort of camouflage themselves. But I would never, I can't, I couldn't uh, one day on Twitter say I'm down and get back in. I couldn't do that. Now, people say I flip-flopped because people knew I was bullish in September, October, November. And they know that now I'm, I'm I'm very cautious. We should get to that in a minute if you like to know why. But I, I actually turned very cautious, and I'm thinking maybe all these all my bull market scenarios that I'm looking at maybe gone with the wind. Okay, okay. So no, this is okay. So this is actually good because I, I've been teasing you know for the last several weeks. I've been every then now again in the after, in the evening I'll say March, just one tweet, just March. You know, that mm-hmm. March is where I think there could be a high risk period. I don't think it's necessarily a credit event type of scenario, which I've been laying out as likely at some point later in the year. But the work that I myself do would suggest that we might be in kind of a short-term high volatility juncture, which it sounds like maybe you might agree with. Lay it out for us. Why is it that you're showing you're, you're getting a little bit more concerned about markets, at least near term? Well, I, I wouldn't want to say that I'm getting a little bit more concerned. I would say I'm getting a very, very, very much more concerned. Now, let me give you some a little bit background and give you some reasons why before I give you the exact training point analysis that we did, okay? I'll give you what's called, well, I'll give you a non-trading point analysis, the kind of things that. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Most people on Twitter or most uh, people who invest can relate to. Because turning point analysis, they don't relate to. I remember, you're not going to believe this, but I, I mentioned that story about being short silver. I told you about this. Uh, the, I, when I recommended to, the, getting out of silver, there's someone who, who, who I know who I'm in the business who was very much followed my work. And he said, Milton, are you telling me that the reason silver is going to go down is because of this chart? <laughs> I said, no, the markets don't go down because of a chart. A chart is telling you that the market will go down. There could be a thousand reasons why it's going to go down. 
mean, so some people are so unsophisticated, they don't really get that it's, the chart is just a sign of what's going to happen. There's far more, there, there are a lot of fundamentals behind it, but as a technician, you don't have to know the fundamentals. In other words, you go to a doctor, you get an EKG, and the EKG says that your heart's uh, very weak and about to have a heart attack. There could be a dozen reasons why you're going to have the heart attack, but the EKG is just a technical analysis that tells you you will have it, you see? So same thing with the market. If something is an indicator telling you the market's going to turn either up or down, it doesn't tell you why. Volume doesn't tell me why the market's going to bottom. It shows tell me that it's going to bottom. It may bottom because, uh, it, may, it may top because Eisenhower's having a heart attack, or it may bottom because uh, the Federal Reserve is going to be raising, lowering rates. But the chart doesn't tell me that. The judge tells me we're prone for that change. And that's really what I look at. I try to, it's very difficult, but I try to uh, put blindfolds on and not really follow the fundamentals. I, I, do, I, yeah, I do follow fundamentals, but I try to compartmentalize that. When I'm looking at my work, my market work, I try not to have the fundamentals influence me, but I do write a story. After I'm bullish on the market, I will write a story as to wh why the fundamentals will suggest that the market's going up. If I, after I turn bearish, I'd, I'd write a script as to what's going to happen to suggest them, for the reason the market's going to go down. But what told me the market's going up or going down is not the story. The story is just a way of explaining to people why a market would go down you know, in the, on a fundamental basis. Let me talk about simple stuff over here. As I said, let's talk about something very, very simple. A bull market began in the, S in the Dow on, in the S&P on October 12, 2022. And the S&P has gained 16.85% Within the first 92 days of the low. That sounds by, the, by, the way, by the way, as I keep mentioning, that happened with six interest rate hikes. The narrative that it, it rained. Oh, from June. Bearish, yeah, the gains from June. Yes. yes, we'll get to that in a minute. That's a good point. But let me just tell you, just looking strictly at the market, I'm telling you why it'd be negative in the market, not positive. Because SP gained 16.85% within 92 days. Well, let's look at every bull market since 1957. I'm finding a bull market as a, a, a market gains 30% after a decline of 22% or more. So I'm not looking at, at intermediate moves. I'm looking really bear market of decline of 22%, followed by 30% bull market. Now, the reality is, within 92 days of those, of those bear markets, we, I think there were, there were 10 bull markets in the past of a 30% gain after a 22% decline since 1957. The median return within 92 days was 23.04%. So we're only, we're, we're gaining 16.85 is against the median. But not only that, only twice was the return within the first 92 days less than the 16.85%. In other words, eight out of 10 times, you had a far stronger return. So the market really isn't, is, is not acting as you'd expect it to act early in a bull market. We're, we're still within the scenario because you're still you know, within the 20% uh, of bull markets that are this week. But basically, we are weaker than we should have been within 92 days. Now, that's, that's within 92 days. Let's say day 92. Yesterday's close was the 92nd day off the low. Through day 92, we're up 10.99%. Notice our maximum gain in 92 days was 16.85%. But through day 92, we're only up 10.99%. Well, in, 19, in 2020, by day, through day 92, we're up 47%. In 2009, we're up 40%. In, 2000, in 87, we're up 15%. In 82, we're up 35%. In 74, we're up 30%. In 70, we're up 24%. In 66, we're up 19%. And even in 62, we're up 11.5%. So our 10.99% was only, we only did worse than that after the 2002 low, which, as you know, was a very choppy low. It rallied dramatically into October, from July to October, then declined dramatically into March. So, you know, and in 1957, which is early on. 
So, you know, we're not acting the way we should be acting through day 92. But this is not a reason to be bearish. I'm giving a background so the people, your listeners will understand that as strong as this market is, it's one of the weakest bull markets through day 92 since 1957. Not, not a reason to be bearish because, you know, based on history, there were 20% of the bull markets had this kind of action. Maybe we're having this kind of action as well. So let's get back to the action. And this, I, I can tell you the same thing in NASDAQ, but let's not, let's not be redundant. It's the same situation in NASDAQ. It's even worse, actually. NASDAQ is up 19% within the first 39 days because NASDAQ bottomed in December, not in October. The median return for NASDAQ over the first 39 days, historically since 1974, and in this case you have nine scenarios, is 38.61%. So we're only up 19 versus 38. We're doing half of what we normally do. It's only one instance where we gained less than 19 or 19%, which was after the 1984 low, where we gained 13.45%. But the 1984 low really can't be compared to our low, because 1984 low took took place after a major bear market low in 1982. It was only two years after a major bear market low, and we're only a few days after a major bear market low, only a few weeks after a bear market low. So if you take that one out, take 1984 out, we're actually the worst gain within 92 days, within 39 days of any bull market in NASDAQ. That should be troubling to people who just look at numbers, and that's troubling to me too. That's not why I'm bearish. We're bearish based on the kind of data analysis we do, but just to give people an understanding, bull market, bull market, we've gained so much. People threw in the towel in late January, early February, even the bears threw in the towel. And I'm saying, hey, it's great that you threw in the towel, but now that the market's down a little bit since then, we're no longer following the pace of normal bull markets. No longer, we were following the pace until February 2nd. We're no longer following that pace. And that might be reason to be negative. But this is just, you know, this is just easy stuff. I'm going to give you some more, more technical stuff. It's also easy, but... For some reason, people are ignoring it. If you're ready for that, I'll continue unless you have any other questions. Yeah, and, and before we do, just, just to reset the room for the remaining minutes here, everybody, please make sure you follow Milton Berg. Check out his site, his research as well. As you can tell, very experienced and knows how to communicate a lot of these complex issues. Uh, continue, Milton, because I'm, I'm in agreement with everything that you're saying. So okay, let, well, first, I, I, my date is March 21st, by the way, for uh, uh, a, not, not, not to have trouble, for the trouble to end. I think if I'm right about this peak here in February, January, February, I think we decline into late March and probably maybe get a low in late March. But you, but I think the bulk of the move, as you know, another thing I'll talk about, we study all the, all the bull moves. If you break, break bear marks into quadrants, the worst move is in the fourth quadrant, the last quadrant. In other words, bear markets don't begin with a bang. Bear markets end with a bang. So too with corrections. Corrections don't begin with a bang. Corrections end with a bang. So I'd say that probably if the market peaks on February 2nd, then it's going to bottom on March 21st, the fourth quadrant would be landing into, into March 21st, and that's where you should see the, the uh, pressure to the downside. Now, I don't want to get into why I picked March 21st. My clients are aware of it because each year we give them a list of potential turning point dates, and that's based on really, really esoteric uh, work of, of the great Paul Montgomery. But I'm not going to talk about that now in this, in this interview. But let me just talk about what I saw in January and February. It's really fascinating. What's surprising me is fascinating because why, did, why didn't anyone else see it? It's really just chart pattern alone. It's not so much uh, data analysis, it's more chart analysis. I'm surprised it wasn't so evident. Let's just start with the um, S&P 500. S&P 500, believe it or not, looking at intraday low to intraday high, gained 6.75% in two days into February 2nd. From the low on January 3rd, uh, the previous day, I think it was January 30th, to the high of February 2nd, the S&P gained 6 and three quarter percent 
Just to let you know, there's been no five-day rate of change of 6.75% in the S&P 500 since off the June 16 lows till today. On a two-day basis, there was a major, major spike. Well, you'd say, hey, that's great. It's a major spike. That's bullish. And many, many people turned bullish into February 2nd. As you know, the hedge funds had the greatest covering of tech, tech stocks in a two-week period into February 15th, starting February 2nd. So, yes, it was a spike up, but then the market turned down. And I said, you, uh, a two-day spike, I didn't turn bearish yet, but a two-day spike of 6.75% tells you one of two things. Either that's a, a breakout to new highs, which means you'll we'll exceed, the, we'll exceed the August 16th highs and break away to the upside, or this is a test of the August highs and will fail to the downside. Now, it turned out to be a test of the August highs, and we were turning down to the downside. Now, as you know, the, the I don't have all the data in front of me, but I know that the uh, S&P mid-caps traded above their August highs in February 2nd and created what's called the bull trap and then turned right back down. So you have a chart pattern of a bull trap. You have a chart pattern of a two-day spike in the S&P. And then more than that, on, on February 17th, the S&P gapped down on the day it had never filled the gap. So uh, that's when we really turned bullish. When we saw the gap down, we, we, you know, we saw the spike on February 2nd and the gap down on February 17th. And we said, now in retrospect, that February 2nd uh, spike was a turning point. And that's a, and that's a top. Of course, from the, the, we've never filled the February 17th gap down in the S&P. And uh, you know, we're down considerably since then. Okay, that's one thing to look at. Secondly, the, the, the emerging market ETF, VWO, it's, an, it's a very large ETF, billions and billions of ETF, VWO. It pretty much went round trip, right? It, it had a strong start to the year. VWO, VWO did the following. It gapped up into January 26th, gapped up. That was its high for the move. Then it gapped down on January 30th, gapped down again on February 6th. So I'm saying the area of late January and the, air, the period of late January and early, in the period of late January and early February was a period of gaps up, the gaps down, and reversals. That's another reason we, to, to be negative. That's that's the video where it's emerging market ETF, multi-billion dollar ETF. I think it's $30, $40 billion. OEX is the SP 100. People don't look at that anymore. When I was in this business, that, that was the main index to trade options on, the OEX index. OEX now did a spike up 4.93% in two days in February 2nd, but it gapped up into February 2nd. So that was a gap up into a, into a final high. And the OEX had also gapped down in a breakdown on February 17th. Three-day volume into a top in the OEX, okay? Remember I say volume is important at a turning point? Now, this is something nobody has mentioned and nobody knows. And I didn't tell it to my clients. I, did, I mean, told to my clients, but I didn't put on Twitter. Three-day volume in the OEX into February 2nd was its greatest in over 500 trading days, okay? Doing over two years of trading. So why would the three-day volume in the OEX be greatest in, in, in 500 days after it's already gained some 18% of its lows in October, and the answer is because capitulation, panic buying, people finally recognizing the trend. Now, so that's another reason to suggest it's a turning point. Now, on February 2nd itself, we have no reason to believe that it's a top. But they said maybe it's a turning point, meaning it's a breakout of a range. Because well, many indices were, were, were at least threatening the August 16th highs. The OEX did not, though. It turned out to be a gap top reversal. It actually wasn't threatening at high. The, 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 it wasn't even close to the August 12th highs. And now, um, anyway, that's that's another another thing we saw with the breakdown. Another thing we saw on, is the GDX. We were very bullish on gold, and to be honest, we were uh, we're still bullish on gold and gold stocks. But we got out. Same story. The GDX spiked into January 26th, and then it gapped down. Let me give you the exact date of the gap down. GDX was up over 53 percent into its highs 
on January 26th, off its highs of uh, late September, all of a sudden it gapped down on February 3rd. So it's, it tried to spike up on January 2nd, gap down on January 3rd. That's when we got out. We were, we were, we were heavily long the GDX for our clients, and we got out of it. We actually shorted the GDX. Now we're up like 9% on the short position. So yes, we're flip-flopping. We changed from long GDX to up 53% to down GDX, because that's the only way to trade the market. GDX is a very, very volatile TF. It's a very, very volatile index of stocks, of the gold stocks. You can make a lot of money in the GDX on the upside if you're long. You can make a lot of money on the downside if you're short. And you can lose a lot of money on the upside in the GDX if you're short on the way it goes up. And you can lose a lot of money in GDX if you're long when it goes down. You got to be trading from the right side. Anyway, GDX is another thing, another index that, that and I, I, I hire this for my clients going back 10 years, all of the down gaps in the GDX I found when there's a cluster, meaning the, it, you, don't, you don't necessarily want to short the first uh, down gap. We want to short the second one. And the second uh, down gap in the GDX occurred on, on, February, on February 15th. And that was, uh, you know, you shorted then, you're still making some good money. We're actually short earlier, but uh, using gap analysis alone, you want to see a cluster. What else? NDX. NDX also gapped into February 2nd. It was up 8.10% in two days. And it just gapped up and it went straight back down, never got to the highs of February 2nd. It had a secondary gap of February 17th. So these are the turning points. Now, NDX volume, by the way, Two, index three-day volume was the highest in 250 trading days. So the OEX volume was the highest in 500 trading days. NDX volume was the highest in 250 trading days. Remember, trading uh, trading a uh, volume is one of the key things to look at at a turning point. And that's where we flip-flop from being bullish to bearish. Now, I'm willing to turn bullish again if things change. I'd like to see evidence of a low. We've had a nice correction, but not as much of a correction as you normally get at this kind of a turning point. It's also not the kind of correction you'd normally get early in the bull market because we already got a 7% correction in the S&P into December 28th from its November, from its November highs from its, or from its early December highs. So there's something fishy about this market, and therefore we're now at the bear side now. No, and I can argue that up until now we ignore the Fed. The market ignored the Fed. And beginning February 2nd, the market is no longer ignoring the Fed. And, I, and now, I, now I, and I, which I did tell my clients, we're no longer... The, the tape is no longer fighting the Fed. Now the tape is on the side of the Fed. And once the tape is on the side of the Fed, you certainly want to be out of the market. You don't want to start anticipating further gains. So that's some of the things we saw into the top. Another thing we saw is the NDX equal weighted index, which not too many people follow. But Bloomberg does have an NDX equal weighted index. We have our own S&P equal weighted, which we rebalance each day. Bloomberg's um, NDX is only... Bloomberg's... Um, Equal weight S&P is only rebalanced once a month. Our, our technicians rebalance the S&P 500 every day. So we have, but the NDX, I use Bloomberg's NDX, equal weight NDX. We didn't create our own. And that double topped on February 2nd with the August 16th top. It double topped within 0.20 of a percent. In other words, at the, the intraday high in the equal weight NDX on January, on February 2nd was within two tenths of 1% of the high on August 16th, while the NDX itself was more than 7% below the high. So the NDX, uh, the equal NDX gapped up into February 2nd, it was up 6.75% in two days, gapped up, exhaustion gap turned down, and now it was the exhaustion gap, it was a double top, which you can call a bull trap. Now, it's not a, a, it's not a real technical bull trap. For a real technical bull trap, it would have had to make a minor new high. It just missed making a high by 0.2%. But I'll call it a double weight, an equal weighted NDX double top of the OS 16th top 
the gap spike into the high in a reversal. So that's another reason to be negative. Now, uh, this you know, these kind of, of, of reversals don't take place with minor corrections of 3 to 5%. These kind of reversals take place with a correction of 10 to 15% or starts with no beer, near bear moves. So I don't want to, at this point, decide whether or not it's just a correction in the bull market or it's a new bull move, bear move. We get lower lows in the SP and in NASDAQ. I don't want to have to determine that at this point. It's enough to determine that we saw a turning point and we want to be out of the market. And if you're trading, you want to be short. And that's what we saw in the NDX, equal weight NDX. What else did we see on February 2nd? Silver. We were long silver. Still had a major consolidation beginning in, uh, it looks like November into December, January, January. February, early February, it broke down on the gap, broke out of the consolidation. We really expected to break out to the upside. On February 2nd, it traded up to a minor new intraday high for the move. Trade closed down in the day, gap down the next day, and that's when we got to have a solar position. Another thing happened early February. Now, what else happened in early February? I mentioned the gold miners. I mentioned the Russell 1000 ETF, the IWF, also gapped up and never exceeded the highs of February 2nd. The aggregate bond index, Bloomberg aggregate bond index, has an ETF called the AGG ETF. It's also a multi-billion dollar ETF. It gapped up into February 2nd to a new high for the move, and then it traded right back down. It's been straight down since then. The VNQ, which is a real estate ETF, also spiked up along with bonds into February 2nd and gapped down. And that's some of the things, many more things we looked at to tell us that that was a turning point. Now, getting back to something you brought up earlier in the day, earlier in this conversation, which is just so fascinating and so so amazing. And that is the actual one of the probably the best performing ETF, probably the best performing group, stock market group in the great bull market that began on June 16th was the home builders group. Home builders bottomed on June 17th intraday. It bottomed on June 17th, two days after the Fed first raised rates by three quarters of one percent. And the, the industry that should be most, most, most sensitive to rising rates should be home builders. Home builders gained 53.89%. The ITB ETF gained 53.89% from its low on June 17th to its high on February 2nd. And believe it or not, on February 2nd, it, it was up 11, over 11% into that high on a two-day basis, gap to the upside. So it's just kind of amazing that the, the, everyone's saying bear market, bear market, bear market, but it's Fed's raising rates. And the greatest gainer in the bull market began June 16th was the home builders, which gained 53.89%. So that, it gained it in the face of rising short-term rates, it gained in the face of rising long-term rates, and it gained in the face of rising mortgage rates. So try to make logic out of that. The answer is you can't make logic out of the stock market and can't use fundamentals to tell you how to trade. If you're a trader, you use the market to tell you how to trade. If you're an economist, you use the fundamentals to tell you what to tell your clients. But to make money in the market is very, very difficult using so-called fundamentals because fundamentals sometimes lead the market, fundamentals sometimes leg the market. But the market itself never leads the market and the market itself never lags the market. The market itself is the market. So if you can somehow train yourself to follow the market, you'll be generally, most of the time, the probabilities are you'll be on the right side of the market. So ITB is, is, a, is a classic, classic example of markets going against what would be expected based on fundamentals. But it's also a classic example of why we should say February 2nd was a turning point. Because that index gained over 11% into that high. It gapped up to the upside. And why should it gap up almost 54%? It should gap up after a low rather than after. Why are people all of a sudden recognizing we're in a bull market and 
bull market and bond and home builders. The reason is because all the short sellers, all the people who are bearish, bearish, bearish in the market for months and months finally capitulated. And just like capitulating is a sign that a low, capitulation is a sign that a top. So we're by, by the way, by the way, lumber also peaked January 31st. Okay, same story. Lumber pick, you got it. So all these kind of things that should have should have should have been declining all along were in their own bull market, and now they're declining. And they, it could be telling us something very very ominous out of us. I don't want to say that I'm projecting it because I'm not. I'm just projecting the, the current move of the market is the downside. Now maybe we bottomed yesterday, and today's the first day to the upside. I don't know that yet. I don't have any information for that. What I do know is that that as, as, as bullish as we were from from June and October until February. We can no longer be bullish based on what we've seen in the market since then. We just can no longer be bullish. As much as it feels uncomfortable emotionally to flip-flop and change your mind as people the way people look at it, we don't look at the way people look at it. We look at the way the market looks at us and say we're not flip-flopping. We're just trying to follow what the market is telling us. And do you look at bonds at all, Milton? I'm curious because I think this is oh, kind of the other major factor. I said the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index made its recovery peak on February 2nd. We follow bonds very, very clearly. I am a very, very long-term bear on bonds, by the way. And I'm bearish for two reasons. Bearish on price, meaning bullish on, on rates. I'm, I'm bullish on rates and bearish on price, exactly. Right. Two reasons. Reason number one is, you know, we had this great, great bull market of bonds beginning in 1980, lasting all the way to 2020, where bond the, the long bond went from 15 and three quarter percent down to less than 1%. It was an amazing, amazing run. That Part of the run was a natural run because the 15 and three quarter percent was an unnatural price. And just to get to normal, how to get down to 5%, because that's really the normal normal rate for the long bond in the United States. But when going, going down to 5% to less than 1% was also unnatural, basically due to quantitative easing and Fed goosing these markets. So I believe there's a long-term cycle in bonds and, and, and a long-term inflationary cycle. And the bonds were fighting the inflation cycle because you had quantitative easing and increasing money supplies for, for more than a decade while bonds were going down to 1% yield. So I think bonds, just on an inflationary basis and a money supply basis, are not the place to be. I think you, I think they'll they'll once again become certificates of guaranteed confiscation, as the great Lee Cooperman labeled them in the 1960s. Certificates of guaranteed confiscation, because whatever your coupon is, is going to be less than the inflation rate, plus the taxes on it. There's, there's no way you're going to get ahead of yourself by buying bonds. I think that's the case again. But for far more important reasons, because if we get a if you get an honest Federal Reserve that does not just Increase money supply and buy and do quantitative easing by buying bonds from the from the U.S. government. The United States would have been bankrupt ten times over. Now they wouldn't have been bankrupt because they would have cut spending. But if you if you have a U.S. government that just increases spending dramatically every year, and they now have one hundred twenty percent roughly of debt to GDP, and off off the books it's, it's nearly three hundred percent debt to GDP. There's no way they could pay their creditors with real money. They have to use funny money. But if for some reason uh, Jerome Powell or any other Fed governor decides to be honest with the money supply and honest with the value of the U.S. currency, there's no way the U.S. would be able to pay off the debts. Now, they will pay off. They cut cut the uh, welfare programs and cut their uh, programs where they just take money from the rich and give it over to everybody else, you know, and, and just, just you know, if they cut cut their spending, they'll be able to, to be solvent. But, very, but if they don't cut spending, they can't be solvent. So I think there's a credit risk as well in the United States if you have an honest Fed. But if you have a dishonest Fed, which means they're going to continue continue inflating regardless of the fact there's an inflation rate of 5, 6, 7, 8, 9%, that's also negative for, for bonds. So either way, an honest Fed is negative for bonds. A dishonest Fed is negative for bonds. An honest Fed is negative because there's a default risk. A dishonest Fed is negative because there's inflation risk. And how, how many people would bet 
that both the, the U.S. government politicians and that the Fed will both play this game honestly. Right? That, that's probably the, the weakest bet you can have. So I'd say if you even make it fifty, make it a third, a third, a third. There's two thirds of a chance either deflation or inflation, and one third of a chance that the U.S. will cut spending and pay off the debts. And I think the bet has to be two thirds against one third at least. So I'm against bonds either way at this point. By the way, I don't disagree. I think I've gone on record myself and said I think we're going to see two bad back-to-back years for bonds, but in a very different way than last year. Last year was the the duration risk. This year, I think, becomes the credit risk. And going back to your earlier point about bear markets end with a bang, one way to get a bang is a credit event. Right? Which right. Credit, well, credit, credit event, well, listen, yeah. as, long, as long as you have an honest central banks worldwide, there'll be credit events coming out of our noses. I mean, it's very, you know, the only reason, look, you know, I think it's 40% of the companies in the Russell 2000 are zombie companies. I mean, it's not my statistic. I read it someplace, and maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's only 20%. But, you know, there's a large percentage of companies worldwide that were basically kept alive through the zero interest rate policy. Right, so, and they're going to roll know, over at higher, higher rates. I mean, they have to roll over. Listen, and it takes time. People say, hey, they're doing so well. You should have done well because they didn't have to roll over yet. Once they got to start rolling over, and, and if you have the central banks not on the side of the rollover, you know, central banks – Deciding, oh, I want to have a, I want to have a, an honest, an honest currency. Of course, there'll be bankruptcies. Forget it. You know, you don't, you don't even need a government bankruptcy. You, you start out with corporate bankruptcies, and then you get to the individual bankruptcies, and then you get, and then finally you get to the government bankruptcies when the tax. Uh, but this is scenarios. I don't, I don't have to be one of these naysayers. I can eat. I always tell my clients on any given day, I can paint the most bullish scenario possible. And I could paint the most bearish scenario possible. I could sit here and tell you that there'll be a golden era ahead of us. The next decade, we're going to have the greatest economy because technology, technological advances and the need for, and, and the Federal Reserve and central banks are now far better, more sophisticated than they've been in the past. And they can control any potential depression, any potential recession just by manipulating the levers of the money supply. And I will tell you that technology, the U.S. is so great because the leaders in technology. And I think China is going to turn towards capitalism. And they're going to be great buyers of, of commodities and technological products all over the world. And I can paint this near, tell you that the Dow will be at 100,000. I can paint this near like people do today. I heard on CNBC, Bitcoin is going to be a million dollars. I can paint the bullish near any day of the week. I can also paint the, say, a bearish near any day of the week. I can just tell you that, you know, there's headed for depression. There's, everyone is, uh, everyone's a debtor and, and companies are no longer responsible. And they're just taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. And people are losing the incentive to build businesses and so on and so forth. I can be a long case. and I can make a demographic case like some people do. I can make a money supply case. But no, we don't do that. We look at the market. Let the market tell me what's going to happen. And the market can't tell me what's going to happen 10 years from now. The market can't tell me what's going to happen a year from now. The market tell me what's going to be happening now and how I should position myself. And that's what we do. Well, I would tell you this. If you'd ask me, I'd say, if you assume the bear bull market began in October 12th, the market is still acting as it acts in, in 20% of bull markets. In other words, the market is still on the pace to be up 30% within the first year of the low, even though it's only up 10% after the first 92 days. I will. So I'm actually I'm still bull on this bull, bullish on this market. I'm looking at this as a correction. However, all it takes after yesterday's, yesterday's close, all it takes is a decline of 4.14 percent from current levels to break us out of the bullish scenario. So once that happens, I will change my view. But if you have to ask me, if I'm forced to give a view at this point, my view would be bullish now. Still, what we're having is a correction. 
Maybe the correction takes us close to the previous lows. Maybe not. I don't know. And then we'll get back in. So, and, in, and I'd say the same thing in gold and same thing in gold stocks. Gold stocks are notorious for having correct, strong corrections of 15, 20, 25% within the bull market. If it's been up 55%, there's no reason it can't give it half back and be down 25%. So I have to say, yes, at this point, I'm still bullish. But what I saw in February and what I saw with, with what's happening with, with inflation, a fundamental factor, what's happening with Fed policy, another fundamental factor, but more way, the way the market's reacting to those policies is suggestive that we'll, at the least we'll have a correction. I can easily see this turning to something worse than the correction. COVID rally had the backing of the Fed. The current rally doesn't have the backing of the Fed. We are really running on, on tape action and running on, on the data. If the, if, if, if the Fed is still against the market and the data turns against the market, there's really be nothing going to be for the market. It's, it's totally different than data. After COVID, you had the market data bullish and you had the Fed bullish. Now you had, after, after June and October, you had Fed bearish, but the market data bullish. Now you have Fed bearish and market data bearish. So I can't say that you'll have a similar market we had after COVID. But I don't believe whatever bull market we'll have over the next 10 years, I don't think it'll be as strong as the bull markets we had from 1982 to 2020. I don't think so. I think it'll be weaker bear markets because it, I think the background, I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking on an inflation-adjusted basis, by the way, I'm not talking about nominal rates. On an inflation-adjusted basis, I don't think the S&P will do as well over the next 10 years as it's done in, in most previous 10-year periods. And that's simply because we had, a, we had the bond market goosing us from 1980 to 2020. You had a bond market yield going down from 15% down to less than 1%. Even if you have a stable bond market of 5%, it's no longer be pushing stocks up. The discount rate for stocks will no longer be declining. Uh, you know, declining discount rate raises the long-term value of, of any company, of any, 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 um, any economic force that's creating, creating income. So I don't think you're going to have that in the next decade. So I'm not as bearish for the next 10 years as we could have been over the last 20 years. We'll do, we'll do one last question and we'll wrap up. I'll give you, I'll give you a fundamental answer, okay? Fundam using fundamentals only, and then we'll get to the technicals. Using fundamentals, 10 years ago, most people in the world did not yet own an iPhone. Nowadays, everyone owns an iPhone. So all the technology that was somewhat associated with, with the platform of the, of the iPhone or the mobile platform, they already had the, they, they already had the great day. You, understand? you can't count on that. So now they're talking about counting on AI and so on. Maybe that's going to be the next leader. But the prior leaders, I think, have had it. Now, of course, now you have electric cars, you have semiconductors yeah. and cars and so on. Yeah. But I think you, ha you have to have, um, you know, historically, we've always come up with a new technological advance. I just don't think we have it yet. Even if we get a pullback now, well, housing is hard to say. I don't want to get into housing particularly. Yes, I think oil is probably an a great example. Oil, I even more than housing, because housing had its boom. Oil hasn't had its boom. But, you know, we really don't make projections. I make projections based on the data. Like I'm projecting after a bear market low, the S&P will gain 30% within the next 12 months. I think that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Milton Berg. Thank you for joining. Thank you for the support. And thank you, Milton, for spending the hour with us. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction.
Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.